Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Gary Van Welcome, everybody, to the Habitat Podcast, where we are here to become better habitat managers. As always, I'm your host, Jared Van Heese, and thank you guys so much for returning to another episode. We love you guys, the listeners, and very thankful that you keep coming back. And it's habitat season, guys. We have another great episode for you here tonight. We have Dr. Hinchcut himself. That's right, Dr. Jim Brauker from Extreme Deer Habitat. We're going to cover hinge cutting history, where it came from, what it's all about, and also common hinge cutting myths and misconceptions or false statements that you might hear a lot out there in the habitat world. Now, we had Jim on in Habitat Podcast episode 34 way back when, and we are excited to get him on again today. It's going to be a two-part series, guys, so episode one is this episode here. We're going to talk about the history and get into the myths and misconceptions, and then episode two, we're going to continue out the myths and misconceptions of hinge cutting and tell you guys all the benefits of implementing this practice. Now, we talk about Grant Woods and Jeff Sturgis and some of their comments on and the way they feel about some of these practices. We talk about hinge cutting being poor forestry and the regeneration in your woods not being as good through hinge cutting. Are those myths or are those uh, true statements? We'll find out here. Uh, we talk about not needing to hinge cut or side versus overhead cover. Are they myths? We'll find out. We have a lot of good episodes here, or a lot of good info on this episode here, guys, and we'd love to, you know, hear your feedback. We're going to post this up in the Habitat chat group over on Facebook, so be sure to check us out there and, uh, you know, let us know what you think. A few weeks back, we had our friend Hunter on, who's a forester, talked about anti-hinge cutting. Well, I like to digest two sides to every story before I make my full decision, and that's what I'm trying to do for you guys here, is get you guys all the information so you can figure out if hinge cutting is for you. The way I feel about it, it's a tool in my tool belt. It's a scalpel, as our friend Phil Holcomb would say, versus a shotgun approach. And uh, I really enjoy the heck out of using that tool. Um, so without further ado, let's get Jim on the line. But I want to talk about killer food plots before we do that. 
So I have all of my switchgrass frost seeding seedbed prepped from last fall. I sprayed it with uh, a combination of cleth and glyphosate, giving it the full knockdown dead in September, and it's waiting for me, brown as dirt, to frost seed here this spring. Now, normally I buy some cheap switchgrass seed online, but Killer Food Plots came out with a blend called the Whitetail Wall. And he doesn't have it on the website yet, but it's coming up soon. And it is a combination, I'm sorry, it is a species of Cave and Rock Switch. And I'm going to be applying it 8 to 10 pounds per acre here in the next, probably next month here in March, maybe April. And so I want you guys to check that out at Killer Food Plots. Give Nick a call. His number's on the site. Shoot him an email. Ask him about the Whitetail Wall product. Uh, it should be on the website soon. And then, you know, obviously all you Habitat Podcast listeners get a discount, 10% off and free shipping at KillerFoodPlots.com. You just have to use the code HP10% sign, HP10%. The link will be below this episode in the show notes, so you can just scroll down to whatever device you're listening on right now and hit that link. Head on over to Killer Food Plots, tell them the Habitat Podcast sent you guys, and check out the frost seeding Whitetail wall, he's got clover and chicory over there too that I will also be frost seeding. Now, this episode is also brought to us by the Habitat Hook. So, I think it was Mike Hatton asked a good question on Habitat Chat Facebook group the other day. What's your favorite Habitat tool you bring out in the woods? Well, the chainsaw is obviously a great one, but another one is the Habitat Hook by Nation's Creations. So, I don't know. It's a toss-up. For me, I love that hook because you could even use a silky handsaw and um, use that hook and get a bunch done while you're out there in the woods. Uh, Nick is actually making some attachments for his habitat hook that will allow you to attach a handsaw to the end. So there'll be like a removable part, um, like a lighter weight extendable hook with detachable heads. One for the hook portion that we see and use right now, and then one that adapts to a silky saw blade. So that'll be pretty neat, guys. Um, I love how he's always innovating. You know, he's a one-man show, created this business out of necessity, and just real niche, real awesome, fits right in with what we do here. Check him out at the Habitat Hook on Facebook or nationscreations.net, and uh, get yourself a Habitat Hook, guys. They're one of my favorite tools to use in the woods, especially this time of year. Now, for those who have been leaving us awesome reviews on Apple iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, and I haven't got you a free decal yet, I have one coming for you. Five-inch Habitat Podcast decal. Head on over to the Habitat Chat Facebook group. Join that group, and the very first post is for people who haven't got a decal yet because when you post on iTunes, it comes up with a weird username. It doesn't put your full name unless you add it specifically. Like the other one that I sent out today, um, his username was Bo Only for Life. Well, I can't figure out whose name that is. So it was nice that he found the group, put his name on there. We got together. I sent him a free 5-inch Habitat podcast decal today. So thank you guys so much for leaving us reviews. We accept all reviews you can leave on uh, Google, on Amazon or Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast app, our website, Facebook, wherever you guys can do it. That really helps us out and helps support us, and we really appreciate you guys for doing that. Now, we did just launch a new article over at the HabitatPodcast.com Habitat Journal. It's one of our pages there where we have um, 
blog posts on different things. The newest one is from our friend Phil Lincoln called Buying Your First Whitetail Property. So Phil goes in there and talks about a couple key things you need to watch out for if you're looking for new recreational property and you want to be a habitat manager and, you know, hunt and manage deer like we do and we talk about here on the show all the time. Check that out at HabitatPodcast.com over in the Habitat Journal. We have new articles coming out from new contributors every month, and it's a great place to to catch up and and see what we're up to and get a little more content from us um, in between podcasts. So thank you guys so much for checking that out and and subscribing to the show here. All right. Well, I want to thank Packer Max Cult of Packers, Hunt Wise, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery for their support in the podcast. Let's get right to it with Dr. Hinchcut, Dr. Jim Browker from Extreme Deer Habitat. All right, welcome back to the Habitat Podcast, Jim. We have uh, co-host Brian on the line and special guest Dr. Jim Browker from Extreme Deer Habitat. How's it going today, Jim? Hey, okay. How are you doing? Good, doing well here and, and uh, just freezing, you know. And Brian, how you doing? Pretty much the same as you. We got a pretty good snowstorm that came through a couple of days this week and just digging out of that and uh, just trying to hang in there till warmer weather comes. Yes, sir. I know uh, it's habitat season, it's uh, ice fishing season, and I know... Um, we're here to we're here to talk about some some exciting stuff. We had Jim on in Habitat Podcast number thirty four. Man, that was a while ago, and figured we'd get Jim back on. Jim, thank you so much. Do you want to tell the listeners who you are, where you're from, what you do, just in case uh, they haven't heard that other episode quite yet? Okay, I'm a retired scientist. Uh, I worked in the biomedical industry and medical devices. Um, I have been retired since 2006. I came home uh, with the goal of deer hunting in Michigan, um, buying property. I retired young at the age of 56, and um, ever since then, I've been actively involved in um, deer hunting, in the deer hunting industry. I have written a book called um, Extreme Deer Habitat, How to Shape Your Property with a Chainsaw, and I wrote that book because... um, I was actively involved and engaged in uh, doing uh, hinge cutting uh, for deer habitat, and I knew a lot of people that were doing it. And as the years went on, I I really got involved in around 2007. I realized there was lots of really bad information out there about um, uh, how to do it, why to do it, and safety. So the uh, book is broadly about managing small properties for deer habitat, but uh, specifically, the most important core of it is three chapters in the center of the book, which are involved in teaching um, conventional cutting of trees and how hinge cutting differs, hinge cutting trees. And then the third chapter is uh, cutting trees for deer habitat. So um, I've been involved in this for quite a while, uh, and um, I have um, quite a bit of experience in the area of hinge cutting chainsaw work. Yeah, and, and I can vouch that book is is an awesome book. It's a digital download, correct? So it's not just something you you can flip through. There's links to videos and and other information, correct? 
Uh, yeah, it's an e-book, which I think is the future of, and, and it's a textbook style book. It's meant to be uh, very detailed. Uh, everything that is in the book is written, but there are also, uh, I forget how many, something like 450 images. So uh, you could read the book entirely as, uh, by looking at the images and not the text for those people that um, are more visual. And the entire, everything that's said in the images is also said in the text. And there are, I believe, 48 videos attached to it. So it would be impossible to print this book for less than several hundred dollars. Uh, it would be a, a, like a, a, a large textbook uh, level uh, cost. So I may, you can buy it for 20 bucks. It's an e-book and it's got everything any other book made out of paper has ever had uh, and more. It, it is the future of textbooks, in my opinion. I don't think people will be making paper textbooks after another 20 or 30 years. It seems to be the way everything else is going, so I, I wouldn't disagree with that statement. Yeah. Um, you can do so much more with it. Oh, for sure. And, and the book also has a bunch of, I guess, templates on how you've worked on your previous properties in the past. Um Habitat plans yes, almost and examples, which I found very helpful, uh, you know, when I was getting into all this. So, yeah, I, yeah I really the early chapters are involved with that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, last time we had John, we talked about hinge cutting 101, three types of hinge cuts, popular misconceptions, some, uh, some avoiding barber chairs, things like that. But today we're gonna. We're going to dive a little deeper into the subject. It's a popular subject right now. It's winter. People are firing the chainsaws up. I know first we wanted to talk about something that's kind of interesting to me is where you know the history of hinge cutting and, and where it, where it came from. Well, hinge cutting's been a lot around for hundreds of years. Um, it was used extensively in Europe. They call it hedge laying, and uh, they would uh, create their fencing and that sort of thing by cutting trees partially and bending them over, keeping them alive, and they're able to um, create uh, fencing and hedges and windbreaks and things like that. They typically did it with sapling-sized trees, um, maybe three or four-inch trees at the largest, um, but it was very popular. And they also shaped uh, trees and bushes, uh, and they did the thing called coppicing, which is to cut trees off and let them regrow and sometimes that involved uh, intertwining trees and partially cutting them and getting them to grow into shapes. And so it was quite extensive. Here in the United States, it really has become popular for deer hunting in recent years. But prior to that, um, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, the Forestry Service was putting out, and there's one book that I have that talks about hinge cutting back, I think in the 70s maybe or early 80s, uh, for quail habitat, it was used throughout the southwest, usually using mesquite trees. And um, it was done differently than we're doing it now for deer hunting because a, a deer is considerably bigger than a quail, so it needs a, a lot more spacing to move around in a hinge cut area. But these were used all over the southwest, Arizona, um, New Mexico, uh, Texas, for quail habitat. And then um, it became popular among deer hunters. And I can go into a little bit of the history of, of how that came to be in Michigan, if you'd like. Yes, please. The Michigan is the epicenter, really, 
of um, hinge cutting uh, in the United States. It's spread all over the country, but it really started in the mid-90s uh, being popularized in Michigan. And that happened when a, a man, a friend of mine named Mike Hartges, got wind of a deer habitat guy up in northern Wisconsin. And he um, had a little company. Uh, the name is right on the tip of my tongue, but I can't remember right now. But anyway, this gentleman put out a video and a book, uh, which was a binder-type book, just loosely articles and stuff, and uh, how to manage your small property for um, deer habitat. And Mike bought that um, and started practicing some of the things. And there, one of the things in there was what was called, they called half cutting, which we now call hinge cutting, which has been called hinge cutting by the Forestry Service um, historically. Uh, and how to get deer to use certain trails by hinge cutting and uh, keeping those trees alive. It's cutting partway through the tree, bending the tree over so that you get the stems and the buds and everything down at deer's level. Uh, it creates cover and uh, it creates browse for the deer. And deer um, will heavily use uh, hinge cut areas just like they'll use a clear cut area. And uh, so he had this video and, and somewhere in one of my videos, um, I, I have a video online on YouTube about um, Mike and I going into his property, Mike Hartges, the guy that bought the information from uh, Wisconsin, started practicing on his property. And he and I went in four or five years ago and cut a tree that had been hinge cut 21 years earlier. Uh, so that kind of sets aside one uh, incredible myth about hinge cutting, and that is that the trees will die after a couple of years. Well, that just isn't so, and we know that because you can walk around in any woods and you'll see natural blowovers that are hinge cut trees, uh, cut by nature, by a tornado or a strong wind. A lot of these are box elder trees and uh, basswood trees that have soft wood, and you'll see them in almost every wood lot that um, blew over 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years ago and and now they uh, are have another tree that grew up out of their um, uh, out of the hinge cut like uh, predecessor that fell down so these things are all over the place uh, it's just not true uh, the problem and where this myth comes from is and again i'm still i know i'm still in the history section but i want to discuss this myth in the context of that uh, because Mike's property is a great example of uh, long-term hinge cutting. So here's this 21-year-old tree. Well, why did it survive? And lots and lots of hinge cutters, you hear them complaining online, their trees don't survive, is because he let light into this tree. A lot of guys go in and they have um, a forest with standing trees and a canopy, and uh, they cut some little trees underneath the canopy, and they die. And they die because trees can't survive that kind of um, insult of cutting into them and bending them over when they're, they don't have any sunlight to um, recover. So uh, a lot of the myths that I'm going to discuss today are just things that are done by people who tried something and it didn't work. Like I've tried to hit on, on a 240-yard drive over the pond and it didn't work. That doesn't mean somebody else can't do it. So those are kind of things we're dealing with. So Mike came in and he started doing this on his property He's selling his property this year that he's had for uh, several decades, but Mike was one of the um, 
the great pioneers of um, small habitat in, in Michigan. And um, around, he'd been doing it about five or six years when this guy from Coldwater, the town that I live in, named Tony LaPrat, showed up for a tour of his property. And he saw the hinge cuttings on, on Mike's property. And after that, um, somehow he became the guru of hinge cutting in Michigan. The difference being uh, Tony's a great teacher, he's a very outgoing guy, and he popularized it. Um, and, and people just assumed that he had invented it. Uh, but really, he saw it on Mike's property. Mike is one of the most shy and unassuming guys you'll ever meet. If he approaches you and wants to be friends with you, you have passed a, um, a a real test of him having observed you for a while. Make sure that you're a guy that he'd be willing to invite on his property. So he's very, very quiet and um, unassuming, uh, and yet he's been a real pioneer. So he brought this hinge cutting, and a lot of his friends over the years, uh, I first saw his property in probably 2007 and uh, toured it. And over the years, he showed these things to people, and, and other people began to take it up and, and really spread across the country. People like Jake Ellinger were doing it uh, in the late 90s. Um, Jim Ward got involved in the 2000s, and, um, and it made some great videos that showed people how to hinge cut. And so it became very popular because it is a powerful technique uh, in my opinion, every bit as powerful as, as food plotting and, and other uh, techniques that we use, uh, as powerful as clear cutting, uh, uh, a wonderful technique that is useful almost anywhere there are trees, in my opinion. So that's kind yeah. of the history of how we got to where we are today. Okay, and, and I can speak to that as well. I actually was um, lucky enough to get invited out to Mike's property probably five years ago now. And and he gave me the tour, and I saw that tree that you mentioned that was probably a 25-year-old hinge-cut tree now. And uh, shoot the bucks that Mike's been able to harvest and have on camera since he's owned that property. I mean, there's no, there's no question there. A very nice deer. Mike's a testimony to how you can manage, a, I think it was a 68-acre property, or no, um, well, something in that range. Uh, yeah, Mike, in 2014, Mike, Jake Ehlinger and, I, Ehlinger and I all killed trophy bucks on our small properties on the same day. And um, this is does not happen by accident. It happens because we're shaping these properties and manipulating the environment in such a way that uh, mature bucks are going to use it. Jim, is there any other examples of hinge cutting outside of wildlife management that you know of in this country up until then? I'm only aware of um, what I said earlier, that it's been used um, in hedgerows and that sort of thing in Europe for a long time and was used uh, for quail habitat here in the United States. But other than that, um, no, and I don't think it's been used extensively either. Uh, until recent years. You had mentioned that the Forest Service had maybe possibly coined the term hinge cut, and they used it before. Well, they, I was just curious. Yeah, I think they coined the term hinge cut. Um, if you look in old Forest Service uh, manuals, they use that term. And most other areas, I think earlier in that, uh, in Europe, use the term half cut. Gotcha. Thank you. 
And Jim, was there anybody else besides Mike, Tony, you know, you and Jake, who really that you know of who's had success with these types of of uh, techniques going back as far as Mike or Tony or you guys? Well, not not as far. I think I named off the guys, several of the guys that were doing it earlier. There were other people too. Tony Smith was doing it up in the Lansing area. Um, other other people were doing it elsewhere. Um, and most of them, I think, it, it arose from Mike's efforts down in Hillsdale County. So, no, there are quite a few. And now I, of course, know of hundreds or even thousands of testimonials of what hinge cutting has done for people. We also have lots of testimonials of people who um, argue that it is not a powerful technique, but I think most of that is technique. Uh, they've tried it. They didn't do it right. And it didn't work. So, uh, like the golfer, they threw the club away and said, uh, that's not a good game. Yep. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, appreciate you going into the history there. Uh-huh. No, that's the best I can do for you. <laughs> not a problem. That's, I'm, it's very interesting, and um, I didn't know some of that about the stuff overseas. So, I'm glad we wanted to hit that. That's, yeah. that's great. Good. Now, moving into... The second subject here, I want to talk more about myths or maybe misconceptions or maybe untruthful statements. I know we had a few things we wanted to cover here. I guess maybe let's start out with uh, one of the larger ones from, from you that you hear a lot that, you know, you simply think is, is untrue. And and I'm, I'm just trying to show both sides to, to the hinge-cutting story here. There's plenty of people that are for it. There's even plenty of people that are against it. So... I just want to see, um, you know, from your long history with hinge cutting, what some of the myths or misconceptions could be that people have been hearing or seeing on the Internet. Well, probably the biggest one of all is it doesn't work. Um, you you see guys come online all the time. I saw one just recently where a guy um, was uh, hinge cutting and, and not having very good success, but there have been dozens <coughs> or perhaps even hundreds of these testimonials that I tried it and it didn't work, therefore you shouldn't do it. Well, you know, that would be like me trying to rebuild a, a car engine and declaring that you can't do it because I failed at it. Um, because uh, there is there are some technical um, issues uh, and uh, requirements to this that most people, they just go back on their farm and they start cutting down trees and they don't know why they're doing it and they don't know how to do it. And then uh, the trees die, and it creates a mess, and the deer can't move around in their woods because everything's in the way. And it's not because you can't do it and make it work. It's because they usually don't do it right, and they're not willing to ask uh, how to do it. And, you know, that's a guy thing. Uh, uh, you know, we all knew we're born knowing how to run a chainsaw, right? Um, oh, yeah. So, uh uh, every man is born knowing how to run a chainsaw. Well, it's quite a complicated thing and to do it right and to do it safely. And a lot of these guys aren't doing that. So the biggest um, uh, problem that I see is uh, people um, suggesting to other people they not try it in their woods because it didn't work for them. And to me, I always go to the food plotting idea um and I'll give you an example of, of how this mythology works. Uh, there are a few of what I call graybeards in the hunting industry that have gone out against 
huge county. One of them is Grant Woods, for example. Now, I think Grant is great for the um, deer hunting industry, but I toured his property back, I forget when it was, maybe 2010 or 2009, uh, sometime back then. And um, he's got um, 1,400 acre or so property there that uh, Jay Killering and I uh, toured with him, just one-on-one, -on -one, just the two of us. Uh, we paid him to um, be able to see his property. And we didn't see a single hinge cut on the property anywhere. Uh, it, uh, the property has a big monoculture of red cedar trees. And, um, you know, they they could be hinge cut. They don't survive hinge cutting, but uh, a cedar tree, once it's cut down, will last for decades. <laughs> you know, they're famous for that. And uh, so he could have created great pathways and stuff. Instead, he uses burning. Well, that's his technique. And I respect that. But uh, back a few years ago, he came out in um, an article in uh, – uh, he was quoted in an article that was in the Quality Deer Management Association um, magazine called Quality Whitetails. And it was an article that was written about hinge cutting, and it was um, five um, – I forget the title exactly – five reasons you may be hinge cutting too much. And in that article, Grant was um, quoted. And as far as I know, he had never hinge cut a tree at the time. Maybe he had. I don't know. But um, he was quoted as an expert in that article. And uh, it was at a convention that I attended in 2016, QDMA. And I was, I believe I was part of a panel on hinge cutting at that. And he said, after, he said during that panel, quote, I've been pretty quiet through all these questions about hinge cutting, but I'm about to lose my patience. Just <laughs> kill the tree, he said. And then he went on to say, uh, the forage and cover value of the native forbs and some of the grasses is far superior, lasts longer, and provides more value. And he added, I want as much sunlight hitting the ground as possible while still achieving my timber management objectives. Well, this this comment, when I read it, I was also um, quoted extensively in that article, as were my friends Jake Ellinger and Jim Ward. And uh, we gave examples of things that people do wrong in hinge cutting they might want to improve. I think that that article should have called, said uh, five mistakes people make when hinge cutting instead of five reasons you might be hinge cutting too much. And that's where I get to the food plot comparison. There's a bias against hinge cutting that is really deep and it's really subtle. Uh, why would you um, title the article five reasons you might be hinge cutting too much instead of five reasons you might be doing it wrong? If you wrote an article about food plotting, you wouldn't say, you wouldn't name the title five reasons you are food plotting too much. You would name the title five things you might be doing wrong with your food plots. Maybe you're not taking a soil sample. Maybe you're not you're planting too much seed. Maybe you're planting the seed at the wrong time. So it's, there's a fundamental way that people approach hinge cutting that um, creates a bias. And it's usually sure. a bias based on untrue things. For example, it's completely untrue when Grant says uh, that he wants more sunlight hitting the ground so he's not going to hinge cut. Well, I can show him hinge cut areas that are every bit as, or more so have secondary growth and successional growth as compared to 
a TSI, the open areas in a uh, timber stand improvement, or a clear cut. The difference being that when you hinge cut, uh, the deer can come and use that that day. Uh, they have brows and everything else. When you clear cut, you remove everything and you wait three to seven years to get the kind of cover that you want to regenerate, uh, depending on where you're at, what kind of soils you have, etc. So hinge cutting has real advantages, and you get just as robust a growth from the ground as well as the stumps and as well as the trunks as you ever will from a clear cut area. So he just doesn't know what he's talking about when he says that. But when people hear what I call a gray beard, you know, in my science career, I used to run into gray beards. And um, gray beards are people who have become so revered and so expert that everything they say becomes the truth, even if they have no experience or no knowledge about it. Hmm. And that would be my argument about Grant at that time. Maybe he's gained some knowledge since then, but, gee, um, he's wrong about that. And, um, no, hinge cutting is not equivalent to uh, or uh, the regeneration is not less in a well hinge cut area. It's less if you do it wrong and you don't let enough light into the ground. Right. Hinge cut trees will only survive if they have light. What you're doing is you're cutting through that tree about three quarters of the way. They used to call it half cutting, but we really cut, like to cut about three quarters of the way, keeping some of the um, um, tree intact so that it falls over as slowly as possible and creates a living hinge that continues to feed the tree. So as compared to uh, conventionally cutting a tree, if you cut the tree down, it'll lay there and you'll produce browse for a few days until the deer eat it all up and then the tree will be done. If you clear cut, you haul that tree away so it's not even there for the browse. If you hinge cut and it stays alive, that tree will continue to produce browse for years to come. And so not only that, though, but you've cut the nutrition of the tree down by about 75% probably. So it still has a nice root system feeding it, but you've cut um, the vascular system of the tree uh, 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 extensively so that there's not as much nutrients going up and down from the root system so that tree's not going to have as many branches, not going to have as many leaves. If you do that under the shade of a canopy of other trees, that tree will die. It might last a year or two, but it's going to die. So there comes a myth that we hear all the time uh, from people like Grant Woods. Well, the tree's going to die anyway. Even uh, three or four years ago, there was an article put out by the Michigan DNR that said hinge cut trees only last two years. They have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, they heard that from somebody, and they repeated it, but they're wrong. Hinge-cut trees last for decades. And, again, we see all kinds of natural examples of it. So if properly done, when you hinge-cut, you're removing all the larger trees first if you're going to do an area. Hinge-cutting can be used for a variety of reasons. But if you, if you want to create a hinge-cut area where you're going to keep the tree alive, they have to have full sunlight. That's number one thing. So the number one mistake I make and where a lot of these myths come from about the trees don't last very long or you don't get good regeneration is because they cut them under the canopy of other trees, which is not going to allow that tree to stay alive, and it's not going to allow any regeneration to occur. So they fail at it. Then they bring maybe 
Grant Woods or some other expert shows up at their property, does a tour, and they say, this is a hinge cutter. Hinge cutting doesn't work. Look at that. And then they repeat it, and they write articles about it, and they get on stage at meetings and they, um, or, or when they're doing seminars, and they say it doesn't work, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Well, yes, it does. They just haven't seen it done properly. So from there, um, um, maybe I can just talk quickly, and I know I did the last time you interviewed me, but there are three main reasons to hinge cut, and the reason I'm talking about right now is creating an area where you might create a bedding area, for example, or you want to thicken up an area so that deer uh, will use it. You can also do the same thing and make it so thick that deer won't use it, and we do that on purpose with hinge cutting sometimes too. So uh, if we want deer to use an area, we'll hinge cut high about shorter heights or higher and allow them to still pass around in the area while having that overhead cover, while having the brows down at the ground, and while reducing the amount of uh, shade so that the sunlight hits the ground and causes regeneration of the ground, all those good things happen. But if we want deer to not use that area, that's simple to do. We just cut at different heights. We'll cut two foot, we'll cut at three feet, we'll cut at four feet, and we crisscross those trees. And deer will not get in there and get in that entanglement. They might go in there and browse around a little bit, but they're not going to live in there because or pass through it because um, they don't have good escape paths. So a guy can go out and do hinge cutting. Since I do, I heard about this hinge cutting thing, I went on my property, and he hinge cuts in a way that will block deer from using his area. Then he gets online and says, well, I tried that hinge cutting, it doesn't work. Well, that's because he did a style of hinge cutting that's designed for deer to not use it. He could have used a style of hinge cutting that uh, encourages deer to use it. Right. So the first type of hinge cutting that we do is uh, to create areas, zones, uh, where uh, either deer don't use it or they do use it, to create a bedding area or to create a no-go zone, as I call it, or a tomato zone. The second one is uh, barriers. And we create barriers, um, and you can do this in any woods, and when I hear people say the myth, that there's no property where you can't do hinge cutting, where hinge cutting, uh, or there are properties where hinge cutting isn't needed. Well, uh, yeah, if you use the term needed, you might be right. No, no property needs to be hinge cut. But if you have a property with trees on it and you want to block deer from walking down a trail, all you got to do is hinge cut a couple of trees over in the way and they won't use it anymore. So it's yep. so incredibly useful for things like that. And it'll stay there for decades rather than decomposing like a tree that you cut and kill or a brush pile that you put there. So uh, that's just not true. So that second area, we have bedding areas. We have barrier areas. It's easy to make barriers with hinge cut trees, and they last infinitely longer than barriers that are made with, uh, with uh, conventionally cut trees or drag trees. The third kind of uh, major area is what we call transition zones. And typically in a lot of woodlots, especially in a state like Michigan, you have a woodlot. Let's say it's a 10-acre woodlot, and it'll be wide open. You'll be able to see all the way through it when you uh, first buy that property and get on it. And that's because forests in Michigan are so badly mismanaged for the most part that uh, they uh, farmers and landowners let too many trees grow, and they create these completely shaded areas. Well, you want to go in there and create one of these zones for bedding, 
And then you might want to create a barrier so that when they come out of that bedding, they only go through a certain pathway. And then you want to create a transition zone. And what I love to do is create about a 30-yard wide transition zone, which happens to be the distance I can shoot with my archery equipment. That is not as thick as the bedding area, but thicker so that if you have an open woods on each side of it, the deer are going to use that transition zone to go through there. And we do that with hinge cutting, and we do that much differently than we hinge cut the bedding area or the barrier area. We do that by laying trees down perpendicular to the path that the deer are going to take. Because every uh, two or three steps along that pathway, a deer wants to have the freedom to move sideways. So the last thing you want to do is create a hallway uh, that the deer are walking down that they they can't escape from. It's walls on each side of them. And that's another thing that people do. They say, I tried to make a transition zone. You cut the trees down. And they cut the trees down parallel with the trail. They create a tunnel that deer are never going to use. Then they say it doesn't work. If you cut the trees perpendicular to the path, then the deer will use it because they can escape at any moment in both directions to the side. They need to have lateral escape capabilities. So those are the three major kinds of hinge cutting we do. And um, uh, in every case, we, if we want those trees to stay alive long term, uh, they need to be, they need to have sunlight hitting them. So you need to clear out the um, transition zone well enough so that you're getting sunlight in there. Then you get new growth from the ground and you get cover. And cover is what a deer needs in daylight. A lot of these guys that don't see deer on their property, it's because their property are too open. And one of the biggest mistakes hunter make is they walk back on their property and because they're a predator and they use mainly their visual capabilities, they can see 300 yards. They choose that spot where they can see so far where if they went into the thick areas where they can only see 10 or 15 yards, they'd see a lot more deer. For sure. And that's what we're trying to create is that thick uh, cover. The perfect deer environment is an old field. Deer are not creatures of the woods. Deer are creatures of open fields that have uh, um, regeneration in them. Burned fields historically in the United States, uh, huge, huge portions of our country were already burned on an annual basis when, when the uh, settlers first came from Europe because the Indians knew that in order to enhance wildlife, they... Uh, uh, burned, and they also got rid of mosquitoes and lots of other reasons that they burned so extensively, but they burned a lot. Um, areas like southern Michigan were very rich in deer habitat. Uh, the northern areas of Michigan uh, were very poor in deer habitat in pre-Columbian times before we cut the forests, because forests are not where deer want to hang out. They don't, they don't do well in shade. Uh, but people think of deer as being woods animals, but we're really trying to create that um, old, old field environment where you have things that are growing five, six feet off the ground and not any higher. And when they do get higher than that, we make them go sideways. Jim, I have a, I have a question for you regarding fire. Um, and it kind of goes back to the regeneration comment you were making on how hinge cut areas have as much regen as a as a an open area or maybe a, a yeah just a wide open old field I, do you ever try using prescribed fire in the woods 
before you hinge cut an area to get rid of any leaf litter that may be on the ground, or is that an unnecessary step? Like, would that improve even more regen? You ever thought about that or tried it, it that? It does improve it, and, and typically um, we don't use fire, uh, and I don't use fire on my small properties except for burning CRP fields or something like that, which I have the fire department do. But uh, it's, it's difficult to... Um, you know, if I start a fire in my woods, I end up with the fire department showing up uh, right. because anywhere you burn around here, I'm in a very uh, dense area. My property right now has two plants that hire hundreds or thousands of people within a, um, three quarters of a mile of it. And in fact, I can see a Walmart distribution center that's like a mile long uh, from every stand on my property. So I'm in a dense area that nobody wants you burning in there. Um, Burning is a wonderful tool for something like that. But you can find you can disturb the ground very um, easily uh, uh, with other means. You can use your tractor just driving around in there, your four-wheeler driving around in there. You can use a rake. You can um, – the ground disturbance is the main thing. But it, even uh, beyond that uh, – almost equal to ground disturbance. Uh, in other words, you don't want a mat of leaves there that's blocking any seeds from coming up. Uh, the second thing is, is deer prevent um, uh, plants from growing. So they pop their heads up in the deer. I had a woods in um, Hillsdale County. I had a 130-acre property there, and it had uh, two large, uh, well, large seven- or eight-acre woodlots in it that had huge numbers of basswood trees. Basswood tree is probably the most desirable hardwood tree for a deer. Um, none of those basswood trees was less than about 70 years old. There were no basswood seedlings. And the reason is 70 years ago at that time, about 10 years ago, I had that property. 70 years before that, there were no deer in Hillsdale County to speak of. And so basswood trees could grow. Uh, but for the next several decades, no basswood tree ever got taller than four or six inches, and the deer would eat them. When you hinge cut, as opposed to clear cutting, so if you go in and do a clear cut in a woodlot like that, the deer will come in and take out all the best stuff that they like, white oaks, um, uh, uh, if you're in a pine area, the white pines, uh, uh, basswood trees, mulberry trees, all those things they like, they're going to um, never allow them to grow. But when you hinge cut, you can uh, get the tops of the trees to come down in those trees. You can regenerate trees that wouldn't be able to grow otherwise in, in heavy deer population. You can regenerate those trees because they grow up in the tops of the trees and they're protected from browsing. So those, that's a, just another advantage to hinge cutting or if you're going to do some forestry work, leave the tops of the trees there because they protect new growth coming up from the deer and rabbit population, more from the deer populations. So, Jim, continuing on our talk about different myths, give us another example of one that you see all the time that bugs the heck out of you. Well, um, one that comes up all the time, and, and I started to tell you a little bit of the history of um, um, the QDMA article on Grant Woods, and, and over time people began to believe those guys. And even, um, and uh, you know, I... Um, I, I don't want to badmouth anybody in any of this. People have their different opinions, and 
I'm simply disagreeing with some opinions. And really the guy that's carried the gauntlet for Grant Woods and these other guys has been Jeff Sturgis. Now, Jeff Sturgis is a guy who I think is just... Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat property consultation services on there under the land plan tab. Check out our HP land plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better Habitat. Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss life on the water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. From the Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest, me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.